Welcome to another segment of The Final Curtain Never Closes. I am your host, Genevieve Keeney Vasquez, the President, CEO, and Curator of the National Museum of Funeral History. Today, I have some very special guests with me as I just finished wrapping up the completion and design of the Shroud of Turin, the most famous burial of all time. You may have been hearing about it just recently. And so with that, I was able to get two special guests to join me and tell us more about the research they did on the Shroud. Uh, So today I am joined by Rudy Dichtel and Barry Schwartz. Both of them are members of the STIRP team, the Shroud of Turin Research Project that was conceived in 1976. They were given permission by the previous owner of the Shroud, King Umberto II, the Duke of Savoy, to conduct 120 hours of comprehensive hands-on testing, but they could not damage the fabric in any way. What a challenge I bet that gave both of them. So we're going to learn more about how that testing took hold. What did they have to do to prepare? And I think really most, what what did they take away from it? What, what was their experience when they were standing there in front of the Holy Shroud? I mean, I, can, I, I can't even imagine Um I saw our certified copy, and I was blown away by a certified copy. I can only imagine the the energy and the impact that Holy Shroud had upon them. Uh, so I, I, let me tell you a little bit about Rudy. Rudy, he's an electrical engineer, a physicist, and a scientist. He served in the U.S. Air Force as a staff scientist for 20 years and retired as a lieutenant colonel. I have to say I am very, very honored to be sitting in a room of veterans. I myself am an Army veteran, so we here have the U.S. Air Force being represented, the Army, and the Navy. Navy. So it just goes to show, you know, join the military, you never know what will lead you, right? In 1978, he was selected to be one of the formative members of the Shroud of Turin research project team known as STIRP. He and his late wife, Joan, joined in the advanced planning and preparation for the testing, and traveled to Turin to participate in the hands-on study of the Shroud. So now I'd like to introduce to you Barry Schwartz, again, another one of the team members there in Turin to study this amazing Holy Shroud. Barry Schwartz began his professional photographic career upon graduating from Brooks Institute of Photography in 1971. He operated an award-winning commercial photographic studio specializing in product, food, advertising, technical, and editorial illustration for 15 years and founded his first video production company, Educational Video Inc., in May of 1978 with food and advertising. Wow, what what, what an amazing uh, array of experience in photographing so many different things. Um, Now I can see why why not the Holy Shroud, right? Well, there's a a little more behind the scenes than that. What if I were to stick in here that atomic bombs had something to do with it? Ooh, (laughs) now you really have my interest. Oh, can I just forego all this technical introduction and get right into the amazing stuff? Was that Los Alamos? Yes. Basically what happened was this. Um, I operated the commercial studio in Santa Barbara, and there was a local company that was a contractor to Los Alamos. And their imaging specialist, a man named Don Devan happened to be in the room when they put the shroud image into the VP8 image analyzer. 
And when they decided, let's see if we can get a team put together, um, Don Devan had uh, called me to ask me if I'd be involved with that. But prior to that, Don had contracted me as a subcontractor to work on a project for Los Alamos that had to do with extracting new data from old unclassified motion pictures of above ground atomic explosions. And they were able to get new data from the mushroom clouds because they had a wonderful couple of Cray computers that were able to do this processing. So for seven months, I worked on a rather classified project that had to do with atomic bombs and extracting new data from that. So about several weeks later, they had done the uh, VP8 image analyzer image of the shroud. And when they decided to put together a team of, of people, photography was going to play a great role in all that. And that's when Don Devan called me and he said, and I'm, you know, when you're self-employed and the phone rings, you're always hoping, well, that's the next job, right? So when he called me a second time, I thought, aha, something else for Los Alamos. And he said, well, not exactly. He says, what do you know about the shroud of Turin? And, and I laughed and I said, but Don, I'm Jewish. Interesting and, enough, because I got asked that same question. And, and Don laughed and he said, so am I, remember? He was one of the other <laughs> Jewish guys on the team. So I was invited onto the Shroud Project by a Jewish man. You know, I'm sitting here introducing these gentlemen and trying to give you their, their astute professional educational background. And again, we were talking about food and advertising. And when Barry took over the conversation and started talking about this atomic bond, this entire time I've been listening to him, my mouth has been wide open. I, I, my, my, my jaw is just to the floor. I'm like, how, how, how do we go from product and food and advertising to atomic bombs? That just goes to show how amazing this project you guys were working on. I mean, talk about into, you know, just kind of catapulting you into another stratosphere. Well, I think it also may point to the value of the education that Brooks Institute of Photography, most of the industrial photographers in the United States were graduates of Brooks Institute of Photography. And, wow. and so they gave us such a, a powerful technical background that sure, I could apply that to product or food illustration, which is a specialty in its own right. But the technical skills that I had allowed me to do a, a diverse range of projects, including the atomic bomb project and ultimately the shroud. Wow. What a resume. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. I don't know. Uh, Rudy, do you think that we can up that? No, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> I don't think we can, but oh my gosh. So you had made mention just a moment ago about somebody had asked you if you knew anything about the Shroud of Turin. So one of my questions for both of you, and I would feel free to answer whoever's ready with the, with the answer on, on the cuff. When did you first remember hearing about the Shroud of Turin? I've been aware of the Shroud of Turin for 71 years. Wow. As a young boy going to a parochial elementary school, we had Notre Dame nuns and Redemptorist fathers. And the Redemptorist fathers published little brochures about the Shroud of Turin, and they would come to our class to teach religion. And the stories of the Shroud were told at that time. I didn't take any notice of it. I was just another kid in class, and they, they spoke of the Shroud. 51 years later, or 51 years ago, I went to John Jackson's house for the first time. John Jackson is the leader of the stirrup gathering of, of scientists. 
we had just come back from ex a, a duty in Germany. I was an exchange scientist with the German government, and I had gone there with the intention of working on radar, but the director had a team that was doing acoustical sonar work against submarines, and they had gotten a brand new digital computer that enticed me to join the, his team. He also encouraged me very much to join his team. We had a wonderful time, but when we came back, we were, my wife and I said we were going to join the chapel at Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we would participate. And the very first thing we participated in was a prayer meeting at John Jackson's house. Normal prayer meeting, but at the break, we went to the kitchen for coffee, and I met John Jackson one-on-one -on -one over the coffee urn, and he told me that he was a theoretical physicist, and I told him I was an experimental physicist, and he asked me if I had ever heard of the Shroud of Turin, and I said yes. And he explained to me that as a young boy, he's always wanted to do a scientific experiment to investigate the Shroud, and we talked about the Shroud in great detail, and I said, if you ever do that, I want to be a part of it. That evening, as we left his house, he and his wife, Kay, were standing at the door. My wife and I, Joan, walked out the door, and he says, Rudy, do you realize you're the first person that I've ever spoken to that knew about the Shroud before I had to explain it in great detail? And that cemented our friendship, and we had a lasting friendship. We were assigned to Albuquerque, New Mexico, the Air Force Weapons Lab, for six years together, and we did a lot of things together that you would never believe what we, what we did. That's a lot of it top secret. No, oh, no, okay. no, this was the fun stuff. This was <laughs> oh, the fun okay, stuff. Okay. The top of secret stuff I don't talk about. <clears throat> anyway, there were two of us. And when the VP-8 became known to us down at Sandia Laboratories, it was Eric Jumper and John Jackson that immediately went to Sandia Laboratories to investigate the VP-8 device. I did not go along with them. But their enthusiasm and their excitement rubbed off on me very quickly. And with that, they were motivated to start the idea of a scientific investigation. In 1977, a year before we went, we had an international conference in the Ramada Inn in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and I was kind of the host. John had set it up, but I was the host greeting all the people and sitting everyone down at the table and so on. But that's how we got started. 77 was the big event, and of those people, that 100 people came of those, uh, 36 signed on the dotted line that they wanted to be a part of the Shroud of Turin research project. Wow, that's pretty impressive. You know, you said two things that kind of stuck out to me in, in your conversation. One is, you've known of the Shroud for 71 years. So that means, I, if I have my recollection of the research I've done in, in the process of curating this exhibit, you've actually seen the ownership of the Shroud change? Perhaps? No, I didn't know what the ownership was of the Shroud. I assumed it belonged to the Catholic Church. But I believe... As a 12-year-old, that was far yes, enough. Yes, yeah. yes. But looking back on it, and, and I may be wrong. Well, the ownership... It was King Umberto first second, who owned it. Yes. So, so in 71 years, it's had two owners, correct? I believe. Well, you're talking about the, the Pope getting it now in the Vatican. Yes. Well, that was more very recent. Uh, yes, yeah, in 85. So right. you actually didn't even realize it, but you've seen... Ownership. You, you right. lived while ownership Train, changed, changed of the shroud, which I think is very interesting. There's another interesting thing that involves the Pope. The five days that we were in Turin, Pope John Paul II. Yes. The first had died the day before, before we, we left. Before we got there, yeah. Wow. And we were without a Pope until we left, and then the new Pope was 
brought on board? It was several days after we finished our examination and just before we were to come back to the States. I think it was the 16th or 17th that John Paul II was elected. But I've said this in many of my lectures when I tell people there was no pope when we examined the shroud. Which people... The scientists ruled. Wow. (laughs) The ruled. And it turns out that the pope who had died had only been in office for 33 days and he was referred to as a smiling pope. And he died, and it was a tragic thing. And then we got a pope back in office again after we left. So yeah, and, and it is a reasonably common error that people make that uh, when, we, when I'm talking about the shroud, they go, isn't it nice that the Catholic Church gave you permission to examine it? And I said, but the Catholic Church didn't give us permission. <laughs> Frankly, no offense to anyone, I doubt that they would have. Yeah. Um, in as fact, the second proposal, the Catholic Church kind of bombed it. Yeah. It went through all of the hierarchy, finally made it to the Pope and the Central... The International Center for the Study of the Shroud in Turin. But it was actually the Pontifical Scientific Scientific Academy Academy that that convinced Pope John Paul II not to let us do it again in case we might be harmful to the shroud, when in fact, when we examined it the first time, they had thumbtacked it to a sheet of wood, and we had built a steel table so we could fasten the cloth to it with magnets that were all coated in Teflon so we wouldn't cause any harm to the cloth. And so we had to pull all the thumbtacks out, and every place there was a thumbtack, there was a little circle of rust and a little hole in the middle that had to be cleaned up. So the fact that they were concerned about us harming it really makes me laugh. Yeah, and actually we we show in the exhibit how you guys protected the shroud uh, right. When studying it through the layers of, with the mylar and the shroud and, and then the and, magnet that you And you've you got one of the magnets, yes. absolutely. We have one of those magnets on, on display for people to see what you're talking about. Right. Yeah, right. And, and I think that I, you know, I'm kind of taken back that they didn't allow you guys to come back because, to me, you guys have proven already once before that you were not causing exactly. any harm. Well, you know, from my point of view, it, it was kind of sad when they said no because— for those in the know, we submitted our proposal first to King Umberto. He passed it on to Cardinal Ratzinger, who became Pope Benedict. But Cardinal Ratzinger at the time probably is the most knowledgeable pope about the shroud because he reviewed everything. Mm-hmm. He thought it was wonderful, and he sent it on to Pope John Paul II. But it was then that the Pontifical Scientific Academy stepped in and said, oh, you can't let the Americans touch it. They'll damage it. I have to mm-hmm. tell you a small story related to that. While we were there examining the shroud, we had already had possession, I guess, a whole day. Max Fry, the man who did the pollen study, who had done it two years before our... 73, I think. 73, five years before. He came and asked for an opportunity to do some more uh, sampling of the shroud. He pulled out a plastic tape dispenser, like you buy in in a local grocery store, and he immediately put the tape on the shroud where he wanted to take a sample, and he rubbed it over with his thumb. And we all jumped back, you know, because that process not only pulls off pollen, but it pulls off fiber, it pulled off anything else that was on there. And we thought, oh, gosh, they're going to throw us out because of that action. But they knew him from before, and so they anticipated what he was going to do, and we survived. Oh. But that was kind of interesting. Well, we were so careful that that little operation that he did that disturbed us. <laughs> well, yeah. it, it put a great strain on the shroud. And I, uh, you'll see in the photographs I have of Max doing this. And he actually went up to the face, which is the most iconic part of the image on the shroud. 
and he was about to put his sticky tape, his dime store tape, onto the face when John Jackson ran up and grabbed him (laughs) physically, pulled him away, and then they went head-to-head, and it looked like they were ready to come to blows, and Professor Luigi Ganella, who was the scientific advisor to the Archbishop of Turin, sort of stepped in as a referee, and there's a well-known photograph I made of the three of them nose-to-nose with poor Professor Ganella acting as referee, and it was decided no one would put any tape on the face. The three of them, is that in one of your photographs? Yes, it for is. tomorrow? Very yeah. good. I'm looking forward to seeing I that I think again. I included it. I yeah. think I So, yeah. you know, we're talking about tomorrow, and tomorrow will have already come when people are listening to this, uh, right. and we are very well aware of that. Uh, so I just wanted to let listeners know that um, the tomorrow they're referring to is that we actually are having what we call an evening with the experts, you two, plus Ken Stevenson. Ken Stevenson, Ken Stevenson will also be joining, and that was kind of a surprise, yes? Right, right. Ken yeah. was one of the non-technical members of the team. He basically was a professor of English, I believe, at the uh, Air Force Academy, and so he became our uh, kind of public spokesman. Our front man. Our uh, front man. He handled PR. all the news media and everything else at, oh, and great. the people's questions and everything because we were busy studying yeah, we the were A little busy doing other things. <laughs> yes. So we're going to actually be recording what's going to be happening tomorrow night. So listeners, if you want to learn more about some of the behind the scenes uh, with these experts, uh, we will have this recorded and available on our website in the near future. So please look out for that uh, so that you can continue to learn more about that in which we definitely are not going to be able to cover just in this one segment. But uh, yeah, please continue on. I just wanted to put that in there so that that listeners know that there's potentially more for them to learn. Well, I I just think that it it was what people should know is that the STIRP team, our team, also planned to do tape samples. However, Ray Rogers, the lead chemist of the STIRP team from Los Alamos National Labs, contacted the 3M company, the actual Scotch tape people. Oh, yes. And they manufactured a specific tape that would leave no gummy residue on the shroud when it was peeled up. Every place Max Fry had put his tape, they had to clean up the sticky residue that attracted dust and dirt. We had tape that would leave no residue on the shroud. Plus, the mylar backing of the tape had specific optical characteristics to allow for... uh, polarized light microscopy to be done directly from the tapes. So it was a little different than what Max had, who obviously stopped on the way to the palace and picked up a roll of dime store tape. Uh, And so we also had a tape experiment. And instead of using his thumb, Ray Rogers and Robert Deniger, who was also a physicist from Los Alamos, um, they had designed and fabricated a stainless steel torque applicator so they could control the amount of pressure applied when they stuck the tape onto the cloth and you have that in we've loaned that to you it's in your exhibit so exactly you can actually see the actual torque applicator that rogers and deniger used yeah and, and, and you know you kept talking about the tape and i was like i wonder if this is where the torque applicator comes in it's exactly and where so it i have a quick question you were talking about 3m had created a special tape so did you already preempt knowing that you would need this special tape made? Rogers or was did. this Oh, he did. So Look, Ray Rogers, no offense to any of the brilliant members of this team, but I always looked at Rogers as maybe the most significant researcher from Los Alamos at the time. Uh, a brilliant chemist, prodigy at age 15. He was the head of chemistry for an oil company. His father had been killed in a, 
an explosion on an oil rig. Uh, he was a, a prodigy, a chemistry prodigy. And when the World War II started, all the men went off to war. And they, at 15 years old, Rogers was given the job of being the lead chemist for that oil company wow. at age 15. So he was a brilliant guy. And so Rogers understood that if you're going to be really careful with something as precious as the Shroud of Turin, you don't just go sticking a bunch of tape on it. You want to apply a known amount of pressure. I mean, that's what a good scientist would do. You want to control the amount of pressure. You want to make sure that when you peel it off, you don't stick it onto glass because it would take anything embedded in the gum and press it deeper into the gum. So he had special well slides made with a few millimeters of space. And so the tape samples only were touching on the edges and it, there was a few millimeters of space underneath. All this was designed and fabricated before we ever left for and Turin. And thought about uh, in advance of yeah. going to Turin. It's, uh, it just kind of goes to show how shocked we were when Max Fry did that. Uh, everybody jumped back, and we thought that was the end of our, our investigation. Right. And so this all happened on day one. Just on day one. Yeah. Obviously, there was 120 hours designated, but the first 12 hours were dedicated to the Italian group. Oh. And which makes sense. I mean, look, I I think to this day there's some resentment. The fact that the International Center for the Study of the Shroud in Turin, who had been studying it for decades longer than we had, they'd never been given permission, and that was their baby, and they were the custodians of it. All of a sudden, a bunch of American scientists from big-name laboratories are given permission. That So there was a certain resentment that I understood. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, to this day, there's a few of them left over, the old-timers, that still have that resentment against our team. Wow. And, you know, it, it's sad, but, you know, people— I, would, it, I wouldn't go so far as calling it resentment, but a negative opinion of the Americans. Yeah. No, I've, I've met a couple of them personally. Yeah. I, I would call you know. it resentment. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, it's how the cookie crumbled, right? It is. Yes. It, well, you know, it is what it is. And, and the fact that people were so concerned about— our, uh, the care that we had taken, look, you know, we spent 17 or so months prior to ever leaving to design, to develop, to fabricate the things necessary, including a huge steel table. And one of the concerns about that table was they couldn't make it stainless steel because stainless steel is apparently treated with some chemical Oil, yeah. that could potentially be harmful to the shroud. So it was just plain steel. The problem is once it was unpacked after traveling across the Atlantic Ocean, there was a powdery white substance oxidation on the surface. And because we had two guys from NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab, they were smart enough to bring several rolls of gold foil mylar, the same stuff you've seen in the cargo bay of the space shuttle on satellites. And they brought with it because our table had removable panels to do x-rays. You can't have steel there. So the panels had to be removed, and by bringing this gold foil mylar, we had to cover those panels so that when we put the shroud onto the table with magnets, that it would leave no residue on the back of the shroud. So all of this was anticipated. These guys were so brilliant that, you know, here I am, a guy with a Bachelor of Arts degree (laughs) on this team with a bunch of mostly PhDs, and I'll tell you what, as much as I'm a public spokesman these days for the Shroud, I never opened my mouth once when I was on that <laughs> team. I just was overwhelmed by the quality of the scientists. And I'd worked with engineers and scientists throughout my career 
these were the most empirical scientists I've ever worked with. You know, you're sitting here and you're talking about these items that we have in the exhibit. It's the torque applicator, the mylar, and the magnet. You know, as I'm sitting here, I'm realizing we actually have first-class relics. Technically, yeah. Yes. Well, actually, the shroud would be the first-class relic. Well, so they'd be second-class, well, wouldn't they? Second-class, you're right. Yes, thank you for clarifying. <laughs> so yes, it because, needs a Jewish guy to correct you because on that. Jesus, yes, yeah, of course, of course. <laughs> thank you. So, but, so, the, so Jesus is the relic himself, or the man of the shroud is the relic himself, the shroud being the first-class, and these items being the second-class. It, it makes the items more precious to me. Very much so, and I can only speak for myself. I didn't have any emotional attachment to this object. Uh, I was raised in an Orthodox home. Uh, I knew about Jesus. Uh, my neighborhood was half Italian and half Jewish, so, you know, Catholics and Jews side by side intermingled. We were taught to respect the priest and the nun the way we would the rabbi. Um, but, you know, I didn't have any emotional attachment to Jesus. I knew he was one of our boys. That was about all I knew. <laughs> and so, you know, from that point of view, maybe that was one of my advantages of being on this team because over the years I've somewhat become a spokesman for the science that our team performed. And, you know, the skeptics always like to accuse us of being a bunch of religious fanatics, never mind that three of the guys on the team were Jewish just to begin with. But one of the things they can't accuse me of is having a Christian bias. I've never had one. Yeah. <laughs> and so it makes me a pretty good spokesman, and the skeptics don't want to talk to me anymore because their biggest piece of ammunition when it comes to the peer-reviewed science in highly regarded scientific journals, when it comes to that, they're not wise enough to be able to address that, so they wave their hand and dismiss it as, and I'm quoting one of the skeptics, the rantings of believers and I'm offended by that because look, there may have been people who were deep in their faith on that team. What our religious affiliation was was never a criteria for membership. And if it had been, I would bet more than half those guys wouldn't have participated. In fact, we had a very good mixture of denominations. I used to list them all, but I can't remember them now. But I Methodists and Presbyterians and Catholics and Jewish and, and yeah. on and on. Uh, well, Vern Miller was a Mormon. A Mormon, yes. Uh, Ken Stevenson, very evangelical Christian. So there were people of faith on the team. And I mean, I'm, I'm a person of faith, but not a Christian person of faith. So I, I think that uh, my role in all this, I always believe that the photographs I made in 1978, that was the bait on the hook. Got me hooked. And once we came back, those photographs were in demand. So even though other team members could publish their work and be finished and move on, I had to maintain the images, had to make them available to researchers, to television production companies, to magazines and books, uh, you know, authors of books that were writing about the Shroud. And so I never could disengage completely. And then it was when that guy called me up and told me Leonardo did it. <laughs> that I said, this is ridiculous. I had access to all this science who reads scientific journals, especially back in those days, before the internet became what it became? You'd have to go to some university research library just to find one of these journals. So the, the public had no access to it. And that's when I decided to build Shroud.com and collect all that material and archive it and make it freely available to everybody. And that's where we are now. And the website's turned 27 in January. So we're 
Congratulations on that. So, As Barry mentioned, he was not able to disengage himself from the Shroud of Turin. I was able to disengage myself because I had four children, young children. We had just bought a new house, which was only a couple of years old, <clears throat> and it required a lot of renovation. Yeah. Sure. And unfortunately, I also fell into the trap because I was asked to give lectures, and that's how I met Nora Kreish, by giving a lecture at, at our church. And ever since then, she's been involved, and she followed me around and asked me questions, and I hopefully motivated her to become a Charlottetarian expert. And I'm, I met Nora <clears throat> when Rudy brought her to my house in Colorado. I live in uh, southern Colorado in Florissant area, uh, in the high country behind Pikes Peak, and Rudy brought Nora to meet me then and came to the house and, uh, of course, got to see the beautiful view from my from my front door. <laughs> but uh, so that's how I met Nora. So Rudy has been responsible. And Rudy and I have somewhat stayed in touch over the years. Uh, I came more up so with Boulder. More so than others. Yeah, more so than, than many of the others. Uh, I mean, we're still far enough apart that we don't drive over to see each other every day. A <laughs> couple so, hour drive. A couple of things that I, I wanted to uh, to elaborate a little bit on. but uh, So, Rudy, basically, your involvement with the Shroud now, after you studied it, was just pretty much giving lectures on the work that you did there? That's right. Barry, we know you took all the photographs, correct? Yeah. And so, give us My a little bit about... My real involvement yes. and only involvement was I was a member of the Board of Directors. Okay. And that was kind of an honorary title because I didn't go to all the meetings. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I kept in touch with John Jackson and Eric Jumper. And our wives were good friends. We were all in the Air Force. We were all friendly to each other. And uh, so we maintained a relationship that way. Eric Jumper kind of burned out <clears throat> after giving lots of lectures himself. And so he decided that he would have nothing to do with the Shroud. But I called him just a few days ago, and I discovered that he is still giving some presentations, although they are oh, rather wow. few, but he's still doing it and still involved. Uh, all three of our first wives have either passed or have been left behind. And all three of us have remarried now to a second woman. And we are living a, a very pleasant life, even though we're growing old. And you're coming back and talking about the Shroud. Yes. Yes. I, I was very happy to hear that Eric was, was giving a, a, at least a, an occasional lecture on the Shroud. And the reason I know that is he contacted me and said, well, I need some photos. <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, I think I can help you out there. And so I made a bunch of photos available to him. And, and so that was my first contact with Eric in many, many years because he had disengaged. And uh, look, he, he was he, adamantly disengaged for a while. Yeah, yeah. And, and there were some personal reasons yeah. that we don't need to go into. But yeah. he also teaches at Notre Dame in Indiana. Mm -hmm. And he's also working uh, under government contract on some projects that are classified. And uh, being involved with something as controversial as the Shroud uh, could impact his grants and, uh, you know, the people that Very work for him that are dependent on those grants for their livelihood. So I can understand why he needs to be very cautious about not, you know, getting too deeply involved with something because it's still very controversial. And, you know, I've had people yell at me, I haven't published the religious affiliations of all the team members. And my answer is, well, I had to know them first and I don't know them. So what, well, what am I going to publish? But it's just that the skeptics use that as an excuse to ignore the science. 
I mean, either you address the science directly and it means you have to have some knowledge to do that, or you ignore the science and poo-poo it as though the rantings of believers. And I'm that's a literal quote from one of the skeptics. So, and the science is very self-sufficient and self-standing. It, it, it's true what we discovered. It's a, a basis for giving some credibility to the cloth as potentially being the burial cloth. That's right. But we have never, ever concluded that it is, and we don't think it can be. Likewise, the blood has never been typed on the shroud although there is a number of websites that indicate that it's the same blood type that was found on the sedarium of Ovidio, it's not. And we can't say that. And the right. best we can say, it's mammalian blood. Yeah, Al Adler, who was the blood chemist on our team, and, and one of the other Jewish guys on the team, actually, <laughs> um, he was being very careful in, in his analysis of the blood. And, uh, but type AB came from somewhere, and it's been per permeated around the Internet, now, we, we have uh, someone now, uh, Adler, of course, passed away quite a number of years ago. We have a, a new blood expert who's also on Stara's board of directors, Kelly Kearse. Uh, Kelly said that whatever data that we have from back then was probably correct, but we now have technology that's f so much more advanced 45 years later that we could then definitively say if it was type Much better AD, job, yes. if we could have access to those samples or to the shroud again. That's really important. The samples that we took of the blood had no cells, no red blood cells in it, and it makes it very difficult to type. The quantity was microscopic, and we did a very good job on the little that we had, and therefore, like I said, mammalian blood is the only thing that we can say conclusively about the blood. Interesting. So yeah, so here, you know, we're talking about the scientific study of the shroud. And then there's this whole religious belief of what the shroud is. And and I always find this whole conversation to me is, is really truly showing that, you know, science and religion, although we try to keep them apart, and, and, and divide them, they really intertwine together. Even even in my profession as a funeral director, the one place that I have to say that science and religion merge together is at time of death. Yes. You know, I did a TED Talk in the Vatican, which was really a unique experience for me. And one of the things I said in that talk, which was about science and religion, I said that science is simply man's attempt to understand God's creation. Very well said. I and like that. that's the line that gets quoted the most out of yeah. what I said. But I, and that's the way I see it is that, you know, I, I don't see a conflict between the two. And I certainly didn't see that on our team. I, I mean, we were able to keep the science compartmentalized and do the science. And I'm sure that there were men of faith on that team that had a far more emotional experience than perhaps I did. And I understand that. I mean, that's goes without saying. I think that, you know, we all live in, in, you know, we all live in a very diverse world and everyone has their own beliefs. Everyone has their own understanding. Everyone has been in, in you know, uh, influenced or, or gained their knowledge in so many different ways that it, it allows us, some people are able to, uh, to stand on their own and, and stand in their own beliefs or what they, they understand or what they've learned to understand. Um, but I think where where we come with to such a a, a disagreement or our misunderstanding is not being able to see another person's way of viewing something. And I think if we could 
just appreciate and respect that that I believe it to be, and you are learning this. You're, you're studying coming from the scientific aspect yeah. of it, right? But if I want to come from a religious <laughs> aspect, we agree to disagree. Well, I, I have often told people uh, when they ask me questions about the shroud or its image, I say, "Well, look, there's really two answers I can give you. I can give you the scientific answer. Science is obligated to stay within the, vis- the measurable and observable." Faith has no boundaries. And with so, science, too, aren't we also limited by the technology well, that we as man have been able to create, right? Yeah. So even though, you know, there's there's a place where science can't go. Exactly. But faith, and I tell people, look, if your faith, is your faith so weak that you need the science to support it? If that's the case, maybe the problem isn't science, it's your faith. You should go back and reexamine that because, look, science can never prove who the man is. There's not one description of Jesus anywhere in any of the Old, uh, New Testament. And that means he did not look so dramatically different that they felt it was important to note his appearance because there is no description of him. And so we can never prove who it is. I mean, people say, well, can't you do DNA? I said, well, do you happen to have any a full profile of Jesus of Nazareth's DNA? Because if you don't, then there's no way we no can No reason prove. to do it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. You compare right? yeah, you you have have compar- yeah. So you need to have something as a basis. So I say, ultimately, when it comes to the shroud, science can tell us some things. But if you look at this more as an object of faith, well, then your faith can kick in. And who cares what the science says at that stage of the game? Believe what's in your heart. To me, that's more important than anything we can publish in a peer-reviewed journal but what's important is that we can show that this is not some manufactured medieval relic. We've proven that, and I can say that unequivocally. We've proven it's not a painting, it's not a scorch, it's not a photograph. That we've proven. And that because, you know, mainly true that the image is only on one side, correct? Not just on one side, but only on the top surface fibrils, just a couple of microns deep. So, I mean, and you'll see that I did transmitted light photographs of the shroud, light passing through the cloth. From what's, the back, yeah. Yeah, so what's, <clears throat> what's important with the transmitted light is anything that has been added to the cloth, blood stains, water stains at the periphery, they're all visible on transmitted light. They're even visible on the x-rays. The and image, certainly pigmentation would be visible. Any, any added pigments, right. paints, or binders... Once added to the cloth, when we transmit light through the cloth, we'd see them, just like we see the blood stains that add density to mm-hmm. the what's coming through. They absorb some of the light coming through. We are very fortunate to have the shroud because it's something that's associated with death, and the Jews did not care for that. And so the person who put it together and kept it intact and passed it on down through history did a very great job. It was very difficult for him to do that. But we have no other shrouds from, from burials, Jewish burials particularly, because they were corrupted with the body. The yeah. body and the cloth got corrupted in the grave, and it, they never came to the surface. But somebody picked up those cloths, that cloth and preserved it. And eventually, Thaddeus or Thomas, we're not sure, but we think it's Thaddeus, who brought it to what was known as Edessa, Turkey, and King Abgar V. And Edessa is now called Urfa, and has recently changed its name. It's Sali Urfa. And it's a very interesting location because that's where Golbeki Tepe is located, within a few miles of that location. So there's a lot of archaeological interest in that area. 
and a lot of stories and history that go with that, with the shroud and how it got to Constantinople and finally to Europe. Yeah, think, think about this. The shroud violates two Jewish laws right off the bat. It's got blood on it. Jewish law says it must be buried with the body. Correct, yes. It bears an image which to this day Orthodox Jews and Muslims forbid dramatically so. So you couldn't come running out of the tomb going, look what we found. You might have been the next one on a cross. Very you know, true, so, yes. so they had to be careful to sort of privately hide this and mm-hmm. care for it. And you've mentioned it should be left in the grave with the body, but there was no body in the grave. Right. Correct, no yes. Nobody. Nobody. <laughs> no body or no body. But yeah, no. no nobody, there yeah. was not. The body was absent. <laughs> <Yes>. So <laughs> I need to share with you at this moment, I think this is the appropriate time to tell you what my little Jewish mother said about the shroud. Born in Poland, immigrated as the youngest of four kids at age seven, raised in the Orthodox tradition, she finally gets to hear me give a lecture on the shroud. And we're finished, and Ken Stevenson was there, so you can ask him about this later on, too. But we're driving home, and my mother was absolutely silent. And when a Jewish mother is silent, be afraid. (laughs) Be afraid. So I finally turned to her, and I said, okay, mother, so what do you think? And she said, well, of course, it's authentic. It took me 17 years and all the science available to me just to reach that conclusion. And she hears one lecture, and she says it's authentic. I said, well, what makes you say that? And then she got that condescending tone of voice that a mother knows how to get. And she, Barry, (laughs) they wouldn't have kept it for 2,000 years if it had belonged to anyone else. It wouldn't have mattered. Very well said. I was thinking the same thing like when and you were discussing And from that. a little old Jewish lady with a high school education, that's a pretty profound statement. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized that anyone who preserved that after the fact, now obviously it was separated from the body, anyone who did that was putting themselves at risk. Why would you do that if it's just Joe Blow in this cloth? Yeah, and I think that, during the research, they, they, they hid it a lot, right? It was kept hidden. Yeah, during the research? Well, during my research for the exhibit, as I was curating, I believe I read somewhere where they it was hidden. It was like wrapped up and hidden in a... In for 400 a, years in the wall of Edessa. Yeah, exactly, yes. And, yes. and, and also, um, Aldo Goreski, who's a, an Italian photographer in Turin, who worked with Henriet, who made the 1931 photographs, printed his prints for him in, in, in the darkroom. Aldo Goreski has written two papers. He had taken, he made a replica shroud... He believes, as at some point in its history, it was rolled up and in a tall clay jar. Moisture then accumulated from condensation, and some of the water stains that we see on the shroud are not from the fire of 1532 that everybody said. Some are, for sure. But some, what he did was he actually created a replica, put it in a clay jar, allowed some water to accumulate in the bottom, pulled it out, and the stains are almost identical to what's on the shroud. So I believe... That his And his papers are both on shroud.com, by the way. I believe that at some point in its history, uh, it, was in, it may have been in the wall at some point, as that's been uh, talked about by historians. But I also believe that at some point, it was in a tall clay jar. And it might have been forgotten, sitting in, in, hidden in plain sight in a room full of tall clay jars, off in the corner somewhere, maybe. Uh, so that's quite possible as part of the missing history, because there are gaps in its history, which, of course, gives the skeptics all the ammunition. So, well, it's got to be a fake. You can't show us a chain of custody from the first century to today. Well, I would say it's pretty hard to show a chain of custody from many archaeological or anything, objects. yes. Yeah, so, I mean, just the fact that there's some gaps in its history, there's still references to it 
in many places uh, throughout history that we published an article by Joe Marino that it goes into great detail of timeline of, 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 of a historic. timeline of references to a cloth with an image of Jesus on it. It wasn't called the Shroud of Turin then, of course. Didn't get to Turin until 1578. So is that when it got the name, the Shroud of Turin? Absolutely. It was brought by the Savoy family to Turin in 1578, and in 1978 was the 400th anniversary. Mm -hmm. That's wow. why they put it on public display and gave us the permission to examine it. So, you know, uh, there's a lot of missing time in its timeline, historical timeline, but that doesn't disqualify it from being what it is. Exactly. In the 400 years that it was in Turin, it only left Turin one time, and that was during World War II. They wanted to protect it, and they, I guess it, they brought it back to Chambéry, didn't they? Uh, actually, it was in... Um, Convent. It, it was in a convent. I'm trying to remember the name of it. I'm sorry, it's I in French, either. and I'm not very good at that. <laughs> Saint Virgin, Saint Virgin, I guess is yeah. in Virginia. English. Yeah, and and it was the only person who knew it was hidden in that it was hidden below the altar. Was the one person at that monastery knew it was there. The monks didn't even know it was there, and it was because a Turin is an industrial city, so it was at risk of being bombed. And so that was one reason. And B, Adolf Hitler was looking for things like the Shroud, the Spear of Destiny, because of his uh, uh, cult beliefs. beliefs right. Yes. So, uh, so there were a couple of good reasons to take. But that's the only time it's left turn. Interestingly enough, when King Umberto II died in 1983, in his will, he left it not to his son, which they had done for over 500 years in their family, not to the church, because he understood it would take 130 cardinals to vote, but to one person, the living pope. And that, so in 1985, the will was probated, and uh, Pope John Paul II became the first legal owner of the shroud outside the Savoy family in over 500 years. And that caused a lot of concern in Turin, because they thought that the pope would take it to the Vatican and put it in the Vatican archives, and nobody would ever see it again. And it is a significant tourist attraction, and, and Turin really wanted to keep it. And King Umberto, understanding, because Turin was their seat of power, almost made the capital of Italy at one point in history. Right. He made one stipulation, can never leave Turin. Oh, he did that. I oh. didn't realize that. It was I King it was Umberto, when he handed it over when he, in his will, the one stipulation was it can never leave Turin. I thought John Paul II was the one who was gracious enough to leave it in Turin. Well, it, it, only at the wishes of, of the king, of the king who Very was good. the owner. So that's where that kind of ties it all together. Mm -hmm. So now we can sit here today and say that the Shroud of Turin will forever be in Turin. Yes, we hope that's so. That's correct. Yeah, we hope so. Yeah, wow, I mean, that's keep amazing. Keep calling it the Shroud of Turin. And look, it takes them a full year to prepare for one of these public exhibitions. They train about 4,000 volunteers and here at the museum i know you've done that where you have some training that you have to train them uh they do such a marvelous job people in wheelchairs there's special access for them people who are visually impaired they have a miniature replica three-dimensional replica of the shroud made of metal cast metal that people that are visually impaired can use their hands and feel the image of the shroud. It might so, be appropriate to mention that the next showing, public showing of the shroud, is going to be 2025. So people should start preparing now. Now they haven't yet made the formal announcement. No. That has to come from the Pope. And there probably will be tickets again, like uh, there, yeah, and before. it's free. It doesn't cost money, but, but you, you have do to have to have a reservation. Yes, and that's how you avoid the. 10 hour waits that we had to people had to do in 1978 because of the internet about nine or 10 months before public exhibition their reservation system goes online they usually make the announcement 
12 to 18 months before a public exhibition. That gives children time to gear up both security and training people and get everything ready for a million or more extra people showing tourists up. showing the up, tourists. Yes. Uh, pilgrims, oh. I would call pilgrims, them. Pilgrims, yes. Yeah. So how often does the, the the Holy Shroud itself come out for a public exhibition? Up to the time that we were there, it was about every 40 years. It would be put on public display. Yeah, a couple times a century. After we left. It's been, we, we were there in 78. They showed it again in 1998. They showed it again in 2000. 1998 was a celebration of the first photograph. So that was 100 by years. By Secundo Pia. Yeah. By Secundo Pia. And they asked John Paul, so do we do it in 1998 or do we wait for the Jubilee year 2000? And John Paul said, both. Wow. So the people of Turin were not thrilled with that because it's, you know, a lot it's of a preparation. Lot of work, a lot of work, a lot of Two years apart. And also they felt that, uh, you know, if we show it too often, people will stop coming and say, oh, well, we'll catch it next year. So, but historically, a couple of times a century, but then they showed it in 98 and 2000, then again in 2010, because in 97 there was a fire that uh, did severe damage and they repaired it. And so they showed it in 2000 to let people know. Then 2010, they had done a restoration in 2002 where they sort of changed the way it looked. So they showed it in 2010. They showed it again in 2015, and now it's going to be 2025. Yet the formal announcement hasn't come from the Vatican or Turin yet, usually 18 months. So I figure by the end of this year, early next year, they'll make the formal announcement, and then we'll make a big blast about it on Shroud.com. But until we have something formal, we can't say much. In the meantime, you can come see the certified replica that we have here at the museum. Um, and let's talk about that certified replica just a little bit. We're talking about the showing of the shroud and when it actually comes out. Because of there's so much preservation that, that goes into the shroud and limiting its exposure, people may or may, or may not be aware that during COVID in 2020, because April, it was very effective worldwide. It canceled all the Easter masses worldwide that they made a decision to allow the shroud to come out for a, a holy mass that was televised around the entire world on the internet yeah, yeah uh, as a sign of hope uh, right. to the people uh, that were you know that we were all suffering from this pandemic and we always you know you learn that the that the shroud has always been that symbol of hope during war and pandemics and human calamities that we in our faith have turned to you know for for for, for that uh, sustainment through troubled times. But interesting enough, you know, we have learned with our certified copy that during COVID, while we were all um, hibernating and trying to stay well, they decided to bring some flaxseed out of the vault and, and plant that in a field in Bergamo, Italy, and grew this flaxseed from a, a very, very original strain and cultivated it and harvested it and wove it into this fine linen on first century techniques to be as close as possible to the actual shroud. And then they laser imprinted the image exactly as it is on the shroud. And that is how our certified copy was made. Right. I was not aware of that. That's very interesting. Yes. And there was, uh, they, they were supposed to make 10. It was to yield 10. Uh, copies. Unfortunately, um, uh, three of them didn't make it through the print process properly. Yeah. So seven were actually printed, and we were blessed to have one of the seven. Yeah, it's you not mentioned- easy to print those, by the way, because we make a, a life-size replica that we print with archival dyes on it 
with an inkjet printer, which is different than a laser. A, a laser is a, a lot more complicated. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the ones that we make are absolutely the way the shroud looked in 1978 when I photographed it, but not on the same material. The material we chose for the replicas we make was to allow for the details in my original photography to be transferred because we're using a different process. We're not using a laser. Mm -hmm. so. It's very interesting. You mentioned the per preservation of the shroud. It's really not preserved properly. Really? We, had, we had suggested a hermetically sealed box, but that was too technology modern for them, and they preferred their wooden box. So the shroud is rolled up in a red cloth, and it's put back in its wooden box and put in the chapel of the shroud altar. So it's exposed to the air for the 40 years. But not, not anymore. anymore. Okay, go ahead. 1997, there was this fire. Yes. That destroyed the chapel, damaged the cathedral, damaged the, uh, the royal palace. They're all connected to each other. Physically, you can walk from one to the other in, inside. And after the 1997 fire, it occurred to them that maybe a wooden box isn't the best idea. So they had, uh, the, I think it was the, the Ita Italian Gas Company, which is a giant utility, government utility, put up 25 million euros. And they designed a steel cabinet, fireproof, light tight, and with a nitrogen argon atmosphere similar to what the Declaration of Independence in uh, in, uh, in Washington D.C. is preserved, uh, light tight, airtight, temperature and humidity controlled. So now it's better preserved than it's ever been in its entire history. Is it backfilled with nitrogen gas? It yeah. is. Okay, that was the, the key point. Yeah, we propose a hermetically sealed case that could be vacuumed, exhausted, and then backfilled with dry nitrogen gas, and that would keep the, the shroud well-preserved. It's funny. It comes out of the wooden box. It gets put into a bulletproof glass case. Yeah, because that's how I always have that's seen right. it in the research. And they have dry nitrogen gas flowing through the glass case to preserve it for the few weeks that it's on display. But then immediately it goes back into the wooden box, and it's, it's exposed to the air. But now it's been well, resolved. Yeah, because of that fire, I think that rattled their cages enough yes. for them to say, you know, <laughs> maybe this wooden box isn't the Not best a good idea. idea. And so they ultimately did what you just described, uh, even though when it was on public display, they would do it that way. Now it's permanently stored, and it's no longer rolled up the way they used to roll it up on a dowel. That's how all the creases got into it. They don't do that anymore. It's kept flat. It's in that case. It's fireproof. It's waterproof. It's dustproof, and it's temperature and humidity controlled. So you're saying that case is 14 feet long? Four a little bigger than that, actually. Yeah. Yeah. 14, 15 feet long? Yeah. Oh, very good. My brain cells are on fire in my head because <laughs> I am learning so much stuff. I've never been so excited to learn. Um, you guys made this so fascinating, and, and I gosh, I wish I could. I wish that we could put this podcast on for three hours. But Thank you for the opportunity. That's <laughs> yeah, we very gracious that. of you. Thanks. And so, you know, I, I, I sit here and I think to myself, you know, this, this shroud has survived through so much unpreserved, right? Several and, trials by fire. Yeah, and travels. And so it, it makes you wonder, you know, how could this cloth be so durable? What... What is keeping it together? And now, you know, we've done all this preservation to, to ensure that it stays for, for, for many, 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 many decades. One, one of my surprises when, when I first saw the shroud was just 
how well preserved it was. But remember that after the fire of 1532, when it was repaired by the Port Clare sisters, they sewed a backing sheet onto it because cloth. it had been weakened, the Holland mm-hmm. cloth. Of course, in, in 2002, they removed that backing cloth. They removed all the patches. They steamed it to get those creases out. They scraped away all the char and vacuumed it, which means no free future pollen studies can ever be performed. And they sewed a whiter, brighter sheet onto the back of it without any chemical analysis to determine if there was anything potentially dangerous or harmful. And by putting a whiter sheet behind it, they cut the apparent contrast, making it a little more difficult to see the image, which is faint to begin with. Since we're coming to the end of our discussion, I just want to bring out one other point. The cloth is given to us for a reason. And I always go back to Doubting Thomas. He had to see... Christ in person, he had to put his hands in the wound in the side and the wound in his hands. And I think we have an opportunity to appreciate the shroud as something for the people who don't believe that they might come to believe. Very well said, yes. We've discussed from religion to science to understanding that the shroud is a burial cloth of a man, many know as Jesus, but we'll leave you with that conclusion for yourself. You know, bring your own mind, bring your own heart to the exhibit and look into it further and read all of the information, get, uh, you know, revalidate some of the things that we've said here and walk away with your belief. Gentlemen, this has been fascinating. So if you want to learn more about the Shroud, please visit shroud.com or you can visit the museum's website at www.nmfh.org. And if you want to learn more about Barry and Rudy and their what the things that they do, more information can be found on them on our website as well. Thank you again for joining us on The Final Curtain Never Closes. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having us and our pleasure. And I hope that you will share this episode and our future episodes with family and friends. We look forward to any feedback you have to offer by giving us a review on Apple or Spotify. And we hope that you will join us for a virtual tour at www.nmfh.org. And always remember, any day above ground is a good one.